I walked into Howard Hendricks' classroom uh, when he had been teaching for five decades. I walked into his classroom, and uh, though it was a class on how to study the Bible, and I'm sure he had taught this material 300 times, it did not diminish his enthusiasm at all. And his lectures were peppered with um, well-thought-out, very well-told, often wickedly funny illustrations. And Howard Hendricks, um, he, uh, many of his illustrations were drawn from his travel. It seems to me that among the uh, faculty at my, the school I attended, airplane stories was, was its own genre of uh, teaching. They were often about um, how he shared the gospel with people he was sitting next to. Howard Hendricks uh, had a strategy when he would teach or when he would, would travel. Uh, he would sit next to a guy and start talking to him. And his strategy was to, as long as possible, avoid talking about what he did for a living. That's one of the common questions, right? When you first meet someone, what do you do? And, and this is Howard Hendricks. The first thing he would say is he'd say, well, I'm a, I'm a teacher. Oh, well, where do you teach? Uh, what do you teach? Was the next. Well, I teach education. Oh, where do you teach? Dallas Seminary. Oh, the person would say, you're a preacher. Oh, I know why you want to talk to me. You're a preacher. You want to talk to me about Jesus, don't you? Well, I know why you want to talk to me. You're, you're a professional preacher. You're talking to me because you're paid to be good. You're good for a living. And you want me to be good for a living, too. Well, Hendricks would tell the story, and, and at that point in time, as he would relay these events, he would he turned to us in his classroom, and he talked to us as if we were nurses and teachers and engineers and plumbers, not as if we were the seminary students, but he talked to us as if we were, you know, normal people. And uh, he would turn to us and he would say, that's why you are much more effective in many ways at talking to people about Jesus Christ than I am, because I am paid to be good, you, on the other hand, are good for nothing. <laughs> it's a wonderful little phrase. Um, it, it's, it's wonderful because he turns that phrase, right, good for nothing, upside down. Usually good for nothing means you can't do anything right. You're totally ineffective. But then he turns it upside down. And the other reason it's wonderful to hear that, that said in that way is because he's poking a little bit at one of the assumptions that many people, many followers of Jesus Christ hold, the assumption is that uh, if you want a job that's really effective, if you want to do something that, that really is significant, then you have to be in full-time ministry. You have to be paid to be good. Uh, we talked about last week about how you value, how do you rate the value of your job, and often you do it on, on the basis of what, else, what else you value in life. If you love money, then you value jobs that are going to give you a high return on your labor. If you value service, maybe you would be a nurse or a social worker. If you value education, you're going to be a teacher. And so the saying, the thought is often, if you're a Christian, then you value the gospel. So the best jobs, the assumption goes, the best jobs, or serving as a pastor or a missionary, and everybody else with every other job is just second tier. You might not feel that pull that much in our church. Um, I hope you don't. Uh, but that's the attitude that I want to tackle today. 
We're talking about work these days, working in the world that God made. And so far I've been trying to trace a biblical theology of work. We've been tracing the story of work through the Bible. In Genesis 1 and 2, the working God made the world. Work is good. It's what God created us to do. And then in Genesis 3, we talked about work in this broken world, how the world has fallen And there is a curse even on the work we do. Thorns and thistles come to farmers. And paperwork comes to you and your office. Uh, Then we talked last week about the fact that the Lord Christ is the master of work. And as Paul said to the Colossians, he is worthy of being served. Work, he said, as if you are working for the Lord Christ. When we read this book that we love so dearly, we often focus on Christ's role as the Savior. That's true. He is the Savior. We should focus on that role. But we should also remember that the Lord Jesus is the center of every one of the promises, every one of the commands, every one of the hopes that God gives his people from the beginning to the end. He is the Savior, but he is more than just the Savior. He's the one who came to do what Adam and Eve in the garden failed to. God had given Adam this mandate to work and keep the garden. And uh, where Adam failed to do that, Christ has succeeded. He is the master of work. Therefore, it makes sense for us to think about working for the Lord Christ. I was thinking about this a little bit more. Um, as the week progressed. And, and I, I want to think for just a minute with you about how Jesus introduced himself to the disciples or how he called them. Where did Jesus call the disciples to follow him? At the job site. I love this story. It's in, uh, the story is told in several different ways in the Gospels. But in Luke chapter 5, Jesus goes, he's at the Sea uh, of Galilee, and he's standing by the shore, and Peter and his partners are coming in. They've been fishing all night. There's a huge crowd there. Jesus has been doing some miracles, and uh, the people want to hear him teach. They want to see him do some things. There's so many people that Peter, uh, Jesus thinks that for everybody's safety, and so everybody can see in here, he should get in the water. So he turns to Peter, and he says, can I borrow your boat. Peter says, sure, takes him out into the water a little bit. And from there, Jesus teaches. After he's done teaching, he turns to Peter and he says, let's go fishing. I don't think this was Peter's first encounter with the Lord Jesus. Uh, uh, Peter, uh, you know, there weren't that many people in this area. Maybe Peter knew Jesus from his carpentry business. Uh, one of Peter's partners, John, was Jesus' cousin, so maybe Peter knew him. For, maybe Peter had heard Jesus preach a few times. But in Peter's response, you, you can see a little skepticism. Huh. Well, you know, um, Jesus, we're, we're professional fishermen. Um, you're really good with a hammer, but um, we fish for a living, and, you know, we tried all night. There was nothing out there. But, Peter says, all right, we'll, we'll trust you. We'll try it. So they throw their nets out, and so many fish come in that the nets break, right? Then Jesus turns to him and says, hey, follow me. What does Jesus do before he calls them? He masters their profession. He says to them, you think you're competent as a fisherman? You don't know what competence is. Let me show you what competence is. I can do everything you think you can do way better, and I am worthy of being followed. Now, how, what would it look like if, if Jesus walked onto your job site? How would he get your attention? How would he call you? 
Let's imagine that you're at home with the kids and it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon and Jesus walks into your house and says, come, follow me. And you look at him and you say, Lord, have you seen my house? I have two kids, neither of which are potty trained and both of them who need to be changed. There are toys everywhere. There's dishes in the sink. I haven't taken a shower today and I'm still wearing my pajamas. And as you well know, Lord, these are not actually my pajamas, but the cleanest pair of sweatpants I could find on my bedroom floor. When I returned to bed after 2.30 this morning, when my three-year-old woke me up with her soaking wet diaper and I was all wet and look at me here now. I have no food to cook and nothing, no clean pants to do it. And you want me to follow you, Right? I don't know. Jesus told Peter to throw his net in the water. I don't know what Jesus would do. Would he say, well, go get your vacuum cleaner, right? <laughs> Lord, you know vacuum cleaners don't pick up Rice Krispies. <laughs> I've tried, you know. When the vacuum cleaner doesn't pick up something, you go over it 47 times. And Rice Krispies don't come up with vacuum cleaners. But <laughs> you're Jesus, I'll go get the vacuum cleaner. To your amazement, you push it along, and with one swoop, every dirty dish in your kitchen is sucked into the vacuum cleaner. It's spit out, and it goes back into the cupboards perfectly clean. You push again, and your two children are sucked into the vacuum. They come out. They come out cleaned, changed, and housebroken even. They're like... It's amazing. You push it one more time and there you are wearing the best outfit you have with a scarf you thought you needed. And now here it is. It matches your eyes. You've got it. your hair done. Your makeup's done. It's perfect. And Jesus says, follow me. And you say, I will go anywhere you want me to go. Right? Jesus is the master of work. What would he do if he showed up at your job site? Follow me. You say, Jesus, have you seen this place? I mean, you may be, you're the Lord and everything, but this, I mean, my work. Jesus says, go get a hammer. Let me show you about your work, or what I can do with your work. Uh, the words, what I want to do today is, is I want to talk about following this master who is, this Lord who is the master of work. What does that really mean to follow him? We talked about it a little bit last week from Colossians chapter 3, but I want to talk about it today in the context of calling and vocation. Those words calling and vocation, uh, they, they mean basically the, the same thing. How do we think about calling? That's what I'm going to talk about. We're familiar with the word calling in churches. We talk about calling a lot. But I wonder, do you have a calling? What does it mean to be called? Or what does it mean to have a vocation? Did God call you to your job? In my job, if I were to go and be interviewed for a job uh, 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 in full-time ministry, they would ask me, tell me about your calling to this work. Uh, what would happen if you did that when, when you went to your job interview? Uh, so tell me, Mr. Samuels, why do you want to be a plumber for our company? Because God called me to be a plumber. It would be strange. Would you say that? What does calling mean, and how does it relate to the job that you have? Maybe, maybe you fell into your job, and so much time has passed that now you've you woken up one day, this is your career. Are you called to that? Do you have a vocation there? This morning, what I want to do is I want to talk to you about two ways to think about calling. One of them is unbiblical and not very helpful. And the other way is, um, I hope, will help you see your work from a different angle. All right, so let's, uh, one more clarification before we begin. Um, 
Uh, we usually, if you're visiting here, this is our normal practice, right? We m- move systematically through books of the Bible. We just finished Leviticus. After Resurrection Sunday, Lord willing, we're going to start in the book of um, Acts. We're not doing that now. Uh, and usually, even when we do something more topical, right, we focus on one passage, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3. Uh, well, we're not even going to do that today. I have a smattering of verses that I want to show you. Most of them are printed on that sheet in your bulletin. We're going to look at Romans, thir- uh, book of Romans a little bit. Uh, but uh, I, I want to I grab some tools from a number of different places and build uh, a vision of what the Bible talks about when it says calling. That's my, my goal. Let's start, first of all, thinking about the wrong way to think about calling. This is the most traditional way to think about calling, and it's the way that you are most familiar, if you've been around church for a while, to think about calling. Here's, here's uh, a traditional way to think about calling. It's the special invitation given to people God wants involved in full-time ministry. It's the most common way that we think about calling, and I don't think it's helpful or biblical. Um, this special invitation given to specific people that God wants involved in full-time ministry. If you've been around a church for any length of time, you know this phrase. We have been called to the ministry, so the saying goes. And again, if you ever apply to be a pastor or a missionary or serve with an agency, they'll ask you, have you been called? Tell us about your call. If God wants you to be a pastor or a missionary or involved in full-time ministry, he will sometime and some way, so the thinking goes, communicate this to you in a specific manner. It will happen at a bonfire. It will happen through a ministry experience. It will happen in a moment of deep conviction. God will communicate to you beyond the shadow of a doubt that uh, he wants you to be involved in full-time ministry. And then you can use that phrase, I have been called to the ministry. And implicit into this idea um, of, of calling that goes along with this is that the idea of having this sort of calling is the highest form of work that you can do. Here's, here's a saying. This would be a, a wonderful invitation. If you're not serving in, in ministry, all you're doing in this world is rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Because, because having a calling is the way to live. Um, a, f- a few years ago, I read a book by Glenn Wagner. It's called Escape from Church, Inc. It's a wonderful little book. It was about how churches have become business-oriented, and they're run just like businesses, and he was arguing against that. And, and it was a great first half of the book. The second half of the book, though, he said, the way to overcome this is uh, to remember your calling, pastors. You focus on your calling, and that's how you keep the church from becoming a business. And this understanding of, of calling has deep roots, deep historical roots. It's Im- embedded really in what was happening in the world and during the medieval era when people would become priests or nuns. They had callings, they had vocations, everyone else just had work. This is one of the things that Martin Luther hammered against in the Reformation. We'll talk about him a little bit more in a few minutes. Now, I, I think that there are three problems with this understanding of calling. Um, it is possible that God may, at some point in time, lay this deep conviction on you. That's certainly, I'm not trying to discount that as a possibility. What I'm trying to discount is the idea that it is the norm or that we should expect it at, at every time. Now, first of all, what's wrong with this? It misunderstands the Bible. 
This misunderstands, this view of calling misunderstands the Bible. The word calling in the New Testament shows up 148 times, and basically 148 fit into three categories. First of all, there's the general call of salvation. Jesus issues this in Matthew 9:13. Go and learn what this means, he said. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus comes and he calls. God, through his church, calls people to become followers of Jesus Christ in a general way. Now, secondly, though, there is an effective call to salvation, an effective call to salvation. And I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is where I want you to turn. What we're going to find in Romans chapter 8 is this word calling in a chain, a golden chain that cannot and must not, is not ever, because of God's sovereignty, broken. And it starts with this effective calling, where when God calls you, you respond. Now here's an imperfect illustration of these two differences between the the way the Bible uses the word calling. Uh, at my house, if the food is ready about 5.30 and my children are outside playing, I will open the back door and I will call them. Dinner! Dinner's ready! Come and get dinner! And I am their father, so they should listen to me. They should obey and come to the house because I have called them. That happens. There are some times, though, when it's not dinner time and I'm looking out the window and I see something happen. Some uh, nefarious action has taken place in the backyard. And I go to the door to call someone specifically by name. And they can tell that person by the tone of my voice and the sharpness with which I say it that this is an effective call. Uh, They better come right now. Now my children are flesh. So this doesn't always work. But there's difference, isn't there, in in how these calls work? Well, um, there is the general call that Jesus issues to all, and you should come because Jesus is Lord. You should respond. There are times, there are gracious moments in time where God, according to his kindness, calls us effectively by name, and we turn to him. That's God's mercy. Look at Romans 8.28. Um, well, we'll start in Romans 8.28. This is where we get the word here, this use. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And here's this chain. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Here's the chain. They go together. They're not broken. And when God effectively calls, he calls. Now, I know that there are followers of Christ who struggle with that and work through this. I don't want to focus too much on that today because it's actually the third use of the word calling in the New Testament that I want to focus on specifically. And the last use of calling in the New Testament is a specific invitation for ministry. The specific invitation for ministry. Happens three times in the New Testament. In Romans 1 uh, and other epistles, actually, Paul says, look, I am a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle. God, I'm an apostle because God called me to be an apostle. 
Then there's a couple scenes in the book of Acts where God specifically invites people to ministry. Acts 13.2 says, While they, that's the church that was gathered in Antioch, were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. All right, and then something similar happens in Acts 16.9 and 10. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After, after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. God had called us. These are the only three uses of this word call in this way, this specific invitation to ministry. Um, what all of these have in common, all, all these instances, is that they are specific, extra-biblical, spiritual experiences. And the Bible does not teach that this is a normal experience or that we should expect it to be a normal experience. It certainly can happen. You may reach this settled conviction. Um, but it is not a mandated, required experience. I think that's what's happening in the book of Acts is not that, that, that Luke here in these verses is trying to teach us how to follow God, to expect calls like this. I think what's happening in the book of Acts is Luke is describing the Holy Spirit's work and he is adamant about the fact that the gospel must be spread. That's what's going on. We're not supposed to read this and think, wow, Paul got a call. I wonder when my call's coming. We should think, wow, the Holy Spirit loves the gospel and he wants it re- spread really far. I think that's, that's what's going on uh, in these passages. And in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, that talk about what it means to be an elder or a pastor in the church, Paul doesn't mention calling at all in those passages. In fact, he talks about desire. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, being an elder, he desires a noble task. He doesn't talk about calling anywhere in there. Because a special, significant, set-apart spiritual experience is not a norm or not the mandate. Now, I think it misunderstands the Bible that there's a second problem with this traditional way of how we talk about um, calling. And this will maybe even show you some of the greater dangers of this. The second problem is it confuses the gospel. It confuses the gospel. When we talk about calling in this way, it has a tendency, because of this emphasis on spiritual experience, to put those who are in full-time ministry on a, on a different scale, as if we have more access to God, or more merit, or we're automatically closer to God, or we have access to more grace or more blessings. I spend all of my time doing what God has called me to do. You just, whatever you do. As if, um, um, because of this calling, I have a different sort of relationship to God. But that is not what the Bible teaches us about how we relate to holy God, is it? We believe that all of us, everyone, is born naturally into a state of rebellion against God. He made us to enjoy a perfect relationship, and we all have wandered away from Him like sheep going astray. And because of our rebellion, we're in opposition to God. We're naturally objects of his wrath, all of us. And we also believe that our hope for all of us is found only in the Lord Jesus. He came and lived the perfect life we should have lived, and he died the death on the cross 
for us, paying the penalty we owed uh, because of our sin. He died, he rose again. How wonderful to celebrate that in a significant way in a couple weeks. Now the Bible issues this call to every single human being. Come by faith. Salvation is by sheer and total grace. You can't earn forgiveness. You can't earn a relationship with God. You can't make yourself more impressive by the work you, you do. You can't perform any significant acts that will make God love you more, that will make him welcome you into uh, heaven. You come by faith and you trust in what Christ has done alone. Everybody, that's how you have a relationship with God. Your greatest challenge in this call to faith that the Bible offers is going to be turning from the things that you think are going to make you happy. That's going to be your greatest challenge. Turning from the things that you think are going to fix your life. The things that you think are going to make things better. It's going to be your your great challenge to turn. You're dependent completely on what Christ has done on the cross as the sole object of your faith. I have a wonderful title. I love my title. I, I love my title not for my title's sake, but because of what it allows me to do. Lord willing, and as long as you pay me to do this, this is my full-time work, lead pastor. It's great. This title does not reduce my dependence on the grace of God. It doesn't make me less the object of God's mercy. Our missionaries are not a little bit closer to heaven because they're living overseas. It doesn't make me so that my sins are just a little bit less and my graces are just a little bit more. In his book called Holiness by Grace, Brian Chappell asks us to use our imagination. This is not how it's going to be, but just use your imagination for a moment. Imagine a man dies and he finds himself on the borders of heaven and there's a clerk sitting at a desk. The man shows up, steps up, and the clerk says to him, Well, now, here we are. Welcome. I'm glad you made it this far. And the man said, Me too. And uh, uh, the clerk said, now, in order to get into heaven, you need 100 points. Heaven points, Jimmy Stewart. You need 100 points to get into heaven. So, uh, how'd you do? Well, the man, man turns to the clerk and he says, well, you know, my parents were Christians. When I was seven, I trusted in Jesus as my Savior. And I followed Christ my whole life. Over 70 years, I walked with him. And uh, so... Um, I, you know, I was faithful in, in my devotion to him, and I love Jesus, and um, so here I am. And the clerk looks at him and said, that's marvelous. That's good for two points. I was a bit shocked. Well, um, I, I was married to my wife for over 50 years, and I was faithful to her, and I cared for her, and we raised three children together, um, and it wasn't always easy, but we made it. How many points did I get for that? The clerk said, three. Three points? Three points for all that? That's pretty good. It's pretty good. The man said, well, um, I started a mission for the homeless in my hometown. Um, I was the chairman of the board. I volunteered hours and hours. We fed thousands of meals to homeless children over the years. What, what does that do? The clerk said, well, two more points. That's good. You're on your way. The man said, well, I was, I was a part of my church. I mean, I stayed there. I was served as an elder. I taught Sunday school. 
I was faithful to the church. I even, when everybody else left over the great carpet color fight of 1987, I stayed. And, and, and I, I was faithful to that congregation. I mean, does that count for anything? And, and the clerk said, yeah, that's, that's wonderful. I'm so proud of you. One point. The man said, are you kidding me? All this work I've done my whole life and I don't even have 10 points? And the only way I'm going to make it into heaven is by the grace of God. And the clerk said, finally you understand. Welcome. Come on in. Why are you going to get to heaven? Why am I going to get to heaven? Not because of my calling, but because of Christ. Christ, Christ alone. I think some of this thinking about calling this way can confuse the gospel. Let's think about what else it does. I think it discourages the faithful. It discourages the faithful. What if you're in a church culture that tells you you need to be called and you have not had an experience that measures up to this standard. What if you love to serve people and you seem to be pretty good at it, but you haven't been called? The problem here with this, I think, is that you have already been called. You have been commanded, as a matter of fact. Isn't that what Jesus said when he told us in Matthew 28, go and make disciples? You already have been commanded. You already have been called. Jesus issued it at the end of Matthew. Your question to answer is not, oh, am I going to be in ministry or not? But how am I going to, using the skills and gifts that I have, do my best to advance the Great Commission? What has God called me, commanded me, and gifted me to do in this work of making disciples? Now, this is going to sound contradictory to what I've been saying all along. I think that every follower of Jesus Christ should seriously consider the possibility that they should be involved in making disciples full-time as vocational work. I think that's one of the questions you should ask. It's one of the things that you should be asking your teenager as he or she is thinking about uh, their full-time work. How best... Should I use the gifts and abilities and opportunities that God has given me to fulfill the Great Commission? Trust me, you can do this in any occupation. It doesn't matter what you do. Jerry Rogers, one of our outreach partners, is working with a ministry right now whose goal, whose goal is to send overseas engineers and teachers and nurses and plumbers and welders to creative access countries. You can be an occupational therapist in Lancaster County. That would be wonderful. You could be an occupational uh, therapist in uh, Beijing where you can speak to people about Jesus Christ. Um, in light of Christ's commands and in light of the vast needs, there are two billion people in the world who do not have significant contact with the Bible or with the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, how best should I use, can I use the gifts and skills that God has given me uh, to advance this, this commission? Every one of us has been called. You use the gifts that you have to do it the best you can. I'll use the gifts I have to do it the best I can. It might mean full-time ministry for me, might not mean full-time ministry for you, but we're all on the same team here because Jesus commanded and called us all. My father spent most of his working career in a junior-senior high school. Um, and he has thus far spent over uh, 45 years volunteering at, in churches as a youth leader, most of the time in my home church. Uh, his favorite group to work with is junior high students, which is a special form of crazy. 
Uh, when I was in high school and I was thinking about my career path, my dad said to me, he said, if I knew then, if I knew when I, when I would, I, if I knew then when I was your age, what I knew, know now about ministry to students, I would have been a youth pastor. He didn't say it to me with bitterness. He didn't say it to me with regret or disappointment in the choices that he made. He just was thinking about his life. He said, if I knew then what I know now, I would have picked differently. And I thought to myself when he said that, and I, I, I remembered thinking to myself, I don't know everything he knows, but I, I've absorbed a, a few things. That observation that he made was instrumental to me in the path that I chose. This is the call. We all have been called. Make disciples. We're all to be involved in this. Don't wait for some experience. The experience is in Matthew 28. Jesus has stamped it on your forehead for you to consider. Now, what I want to do, having done that, I think that talking about the wrong way to think about call, let's spend a few minutes thinking about calling biblically. I want to talk about calling the right way. Don't think about calling as a necessary, extra special spiritual experience. Um, I want to show you positively what the Bible talks about when it thinks about calling. And I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. In this passage, uh, Paul is writing to a group of believers who, who think that in order to follow God faithfully, they have to change their lives. This is what some of them were thinking. I've got to do something different. If I'm single, I need to get married. If I'm married, I need to be single. If I'm a slave, I need to be free. If I'm free, well, should I, I, what's slavery? Um, they think they have to change their life in some way in order to serve God faithfully. And look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all of the churches. These are the same words. The words call and assigned in this passage are the same words Paul's going to use in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 to talk about spiritual gifts. God assigns through his providence God calls through his sovereign working people to fill various roles. And your greatest challenge is not for you to think about how I must change my life to serve God, but how I can fulfill the, what God has for me in the situation I find myself in right now. So maybe you should, when you go to be interviewed, say, God called me to be a plumber. Maybe you should. Here's what I want to do. What I, want to, uh, uh, I want to summarize this biblical thinking about vocation um, in, in this way. This is how I would, would say this. This sentence isn't in your notes. It probably should be. But here, here's what this calling is. You are called by God to love your neighbor in whatever roles you fill. That's what I think a biblical view of calling is. You are called by God to love your neighbor in whatever you, roles you fulfill. The calling is to these roles, and you fulfill your calling by using them as the platform to love your neighbor. Now, let me build that on three foundational stones, this biblical idea of vocation. Here's the first one. The first one is God's rule over creation. God's rule over creation. 
God providentially made human life to work in a specific way. He made it so that food would need to be cooked. He made it so that wood would need to be cut and houses would need to be built and, and children would need to be raised and grain would need to be grown. And in his providence, he made it that electricity would need to be produced and refrigerators would need to be made and roads would need to be paved. This is how God made the world. In God's wisdom and in God's providence, he made it so that just surviving is, takes a lot of work. God did not give you superpowers that would enable you to uh, pave, your lens, uh, pave your lawn by just pounding the ground. God did not make human beings parent like sea turtles. You don't lay your children and leave them there and, and swim away. God made it so that work is involved, a lot of work, a lot of very mundane, repetitive work. It's God's design. It's part of his rule over creation. The biblical idea of vocation and calling is built on the fact that God's the creator. He's not just a savior. He is the maker of life. He designed the world with the expectation that you would work hard to feed yourself and provide for yourself. It's normal. It's good to be involved in these basic human working tasks. And everybody here is involved in that some way. It is, it is part of God's good plan that, that bread would need to be baked. He made the world that way. All right. Second, the idea of vocation is built on God's use of human beings to fulfill his purposes. God's use of human beings to fulfill his purposes. I think this is the most important part, and Martin Luther pointed this out. I want to show you three verses. How does God fulfill his purposes? Often through human beings. First, I want to show you from Romans 13. So flip over to Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. It is God's will that a country be ruled justly, that criminals be punished. That's God's will. How does God accomplish this purposes? Romans chapter 13, look what it says. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. It's God's will that evildoers be punished, and he could, without difficulty, uh, stand in heaven and discipline everyone who breaks the law. He could, without trouble at all. It wouldn't, wouldn't tax him. It wouldn't tire him. It wouldn't disturb him in any way. But God in, in that place, instead of doing that, he has appointed civil government to enact these things. They're God's servants. Whether they realize it or not, they're God's servants doing God's will. So he uses judges and he uses police officers and attorneys and prison wardens and guard dog trainers and guards and medical examiners and detectives. 
They are doing God's work because God uses human means to accomplish his purposes. Look at Psalm 147.13. I want you to read this. As I read this, think about who's involved in this. God, that's the he. He strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. This is what God does. He strengthens gates. How does God strengthen gates? Through iron workers and masons and carpenters and laborers. God uses human beings to accomplish his purposes. And then this last verse is this very familiar word, phrase, rather, from the Lord's Prayer. This, Martin Luther put his focus dead here on this verse. Give us this day our daily bread. You pray for bread. How does God give you bread? Well, it does not fall from the heavens, does it? God provides bread. How does he provide bread? He uses um, um, farmers to grow wheat and truck drivers to get it to the bakery and bakers to bake it and salt miners to flavor it and grocers to sell it. This list of people is huge, right? If you think about this. Of, uh, just to get you your bagel in the morning. This is the world in which we live. This is the world that God designed it. It takes a tremendous amount of work to survive, and God calls and assigns workers to accomplish it all. And, and now this third point is here, how, how the, the Lord Christ shapes how we go about our work. Uh, next here, God's command to love your neighbor. God's command to love your neighbor. This is the motivating principle behind your work. Not everyone works this way. Not everyone thinks about work this way. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you cannot forget this. This system of work um, is to be fueled by followers of Jesus Christ who, for the sake of their love for their neighbor, bake really good bread and build really good houses and, and print really good books. It works with loveless people. You don't have to be loved by your baker to enjoy eating his bread. It works with loveless people. It's a lot more satisfying with love. Dorothy Sayers wrote this uh, about this. She wrote uh, about work during and, and before, before and during World War II. She made some interesting observations. Listen to what she said. The habit of thinking about work uh, as something one does to make money is so ingrained in us that we can scarcely imagine what a revolutionary change it would be to think about it instead of the terms of the work done itself. I believe there is a Christian doctrine of work very closely related to the doctrines of the creative energy of God and the divine image in man. The modern heresy is that work is not the expression of man's creative energy in the service of society. Notice that, work for the sake of love. But we are wrong to think that work is only something one does in order to obtain money and leisure. Doctors practice medicine not primarily to relieve suffering, but to make a living. The cure of the patient is something that happens on the way. Lawyers accept briefs not because they have a passion for justice, because the law is the profession which enables them to live. And then she watched as these doctors and these lawyers and engineers who were in it for the money, she says, went into the army during World War II, fighting to defend Great Britain. Listen to what she said. The reason why men often find themselves happy and satisfied in the army is that for the first time in their lives, they, found themselves, they find themselves doing something not for the pay, which is miserable, but for the sake of getting the thing done and for serving society. 
I wonder if maybe that's the problem with your work and one of the reasons that you struggle with it. One of the reasons you feel a disconnect with what you do. You should ask yourself, how does my work enable me to love my neighbor? How, where in the cog, where in the, in God's provision for people in criminal justice or in food or in security or in health or in education, where in the spectrum of God the Creator's great blessings to human beings am I contributing here? How am I loving my neighbor through the labor that I'm doing? How, how am I accomplishing God's purposes in other people's lives? If you grab this, this will drive you actually to uh, excellence. This is, this is a form of love. Excellence at your work, isn't it? How does a carpenter show love? By building excellent homes. How does a doctor show love? By giving great and accurate diagnoses. Accountants show love by doing your taxes correctly. In the calling to which the Lord has assigned you, focus your energy and tension on serving as the means by which God cares for and provides for the world he, mean, he made. That's calling. That's vocation. Now, let me just finish with three clarifying observations about calling. Here's the first one. You have multiple vocations. You have multiple vocations. Um, there's various ways in which you serve. Look, uh, Martin Luther pointed out four of them. He said, you are a citizen, you are a church member, you are a worker, and you are a member of the family. A member of a family. And all four of those things, there are certain vocational aspects. To be a good citizen, to be a, a member of a church, to be uh, a worker, and to uh, have a, a family. There's a certain uh, various callings, various shades of how you show neighbor love in those circumstances. Second, your vocation changes over time. Your vocation changes over time. Parenting doesn't look the same, does it, all the way throughout life. Some of you have a vocation right now. You're a student. That's your vocation. And your calling is to study and to prepare to serve. Every human vocation is temporary. Every single one of them. Some of them last a little longer, but they're all temporary. Finally, notice this here, your vocation is not something you choose, but a role to which you are called. That's the word calling right there. Vocation is not something you choose, but a role to which you are called. Properly understood, our work is something we are invited to do. You do not have a calling unless someone else asks you to do it. You are not a landscaper unless someone calls you to their house and says, here's a rake, go to work. You're not a plumber if you're not plumbing any pipes. Um, you're not a teacher unless you have students willing to sit under uh, you. We are all called to the work that God gives us uh, by somebody. So maybe you should, don't ask little children anymore what they want to be when they grow up. You should ask them instead what they hope someone will pay them to do. What do you hope someone invites you to do when you're big? And the point, two seemingly opposite directions here. On the one hand, in the world in which we live, the modern world, you have a stunning amount of choice in the vocations, in the work that you do. It's a stunning. Uh, uh, 500 years ago, no one would have understood the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? 
It was determined by your parents, what your dad did, what your mom did. We have a stunning amount of choice in our vocations. On the other hand, though, you don't have as much choice as you think you, you do. Here's what I mean by that. What you do, the work you do, is a product of who you are. And who you are is the product of God's design. I may want to be an NBA all-star. I don't have the genes necessary for that sort of career. Um, I may want to be a nuclear physicist, but I don't have the brain to do it. I may want to be an oceanographer, but the other callings that I have may keep me away from the ocean. Who gave me those circumstances? Who gave me the genes that I have? Who gave me the abilities that I have? Hmm. Uh, A couple weeks ago, earlier in April, there was this big protest at Dartmouth College. Maybe you heard about this protest. Well, a number of students gathered in the president's office. It was a sit-in, and they had 70 things that they wanted changed. They wanted to be changed about their education at Dartmouth. And one of them was that they wanted the government, uh, not the government, excuse me, the, the, the student health plan, the student health insurance that the university offered, they wanted that to cover sex change operations. And the reason they wanted the sex change operations to be covered by health insurance is because they were demanding, they said, we demand body and gender self-determination. That's a funny thing if you think about it. We demand body and gender self-determination. I'm going to call my insurance company. I want you to pay for me to be six foot four so I can play basketball for the 76ers. They'll take me. I, so that I'll be tall enough, so that I will be tall enough to play basketball because I demand body and gender self-determination. I demand that you pay for the necessary surgery so that my voice sounds like, oh, fill in the blank, Luciano Pavarotti. Because I demand body and gender self-determination. When you start thinking about it in other categories other than your um, sexual organs, it begins to sound a little silly, doesn't it? God, what you do is a product of who you are, and who you are is a product of God's design. So this begs the question, how do I know what God wants me to do? How do I know what my vocation is supposed to be? God indicates his will to us through a combination of our design, our understanding of the needs around us, the limitations he places on us, the opportunities that arise. All those things are are the ways in which God made you. And the way God indicates his will. He did not make me six foot three, six foot four, so I could play in the NBA. God um, did not give me Pavarotti's voice, so I'm not in Italy singing. God made you the way you are, with the things you like, with the things you can't do, with the opportunities that you have, with the skills that you have. And that's God pointing you in a direction, living out how he made you. So you should ask the question, how with my existing abilities and the existing opportunities I have, can I be of greatest service to other people? How can I, knowing God's will and knowing human need, how can I love my neighbor best with the skills that God has given me? And some of you that means you're excellent teachers. For some of you that means you're really good nurses. 
For some of you, at this point in time, because the vocation you have, you stay at home and you pour your love into little children that are in your house. For some of it, it means that you build things, wonderful, beautiful things for people. Um, on their ceilings, on the floor. You paint things, walls and furniture and houses. How can I best, in light of my existing opportunities and, and abilities and limitations, how can I best show love to other people? Frederick Beekner said this, To believe that a wise and good God is in charge of things implies that there is a fit between things that need doing and the person I am meant to be. Read that again. To believe that a wise and good God is in charge of things implies that there is a fit between things that need doing and the person I am meant to be. That's how you find vocation. Keep those things in balance. A wise and good God who ordains and rules over the universe and he's placed needs in my path and he has fit me to meet them. All three of those things, putting them together is how you work in response to Christ's call. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we confess that um, following you um, is difficult. And sometimes when we, we, when we think about this word calling and how this experience I'm supposed to have, it makes it even, even harder. Father, for the, those uh, men and women who are in our congregation this morning who feel under this burden because what they do doesn't matter, I pray this week that you would lift their minds and hearts uh, and that you would enable them to see significantly how they're loving their neighbor through the roles that they fulfill. Help them to do that this week, whether they're packing boxes or carrying carpeting or packing eggs or um, meeting with clients or um, preparing estimates or filling out forms all these things that, that these men and women do. Um, help them to, to find contentment and joy in that because you have called them for this week to these tasks. Uh, I, I prayed, Father, that you would help us to love one another better. Now I ask that you would help us to love our neighbors with the skills and abilities you've given us because of our confidence in your wisdom and your goodness. We pray these things together in the name of Jesus, saying, Amen.